This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a real special guest. We have Devin Beck, who went to the University of Arizona uh, with a fishery science major. Uh, Devin is 32 years old and is just a coos deer maniac. Uh, this guy loves to hunt coos deer. He loves everything about these deer. Uh, we have a real uh, fortunate situation to have him here with us today, a guy that him and his family, have, him and his wife have harvested a uh, couple bucks over 125 inches, uh, handfuls of bucks in the 112 to 118 inches. Uh, Devin lives in Tucson, Arizona, and is is right in the heart of some of the greatest coos deer country in Arizona. Uh, he runs Arizona Wildlife Designs Taxidermy Studio, and uh, I'm just uh, fortunate to have him today. Devin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. That's awesome, buddy. I had to give you a little bit of a plug there going to U of A, uh, being an ASU grad myself. Uh, I've got uh, family members that went to U of A and, and other family members that went to ASU, and it's always a, a great rivalry, uh, sometimes more heated than, than some during football season, but uh, right. always nice. In, anybody from the state of Arizona, in my mind, is a, is a, is a good person. So I'm glad to have you on the show today and uh, look forward to talking to you and picking your brain a little bit about coos deer. For sure, for sure. Devin, uh, why don't you give me a little bit of a background on your love for coos deer and maybe when you started hunting them and when you knew the passion for coos deer, you know, burned through your veins? Uh, you know, growing up, my my dad is a big-time mule deer fanatic. Um, I grew up in St. John's, Arizona, north of Springerville there, and... Um, uh, I guess my first taste of coos deer, I think I was in eighth grade, and my dad and I drew a 27 late coos deer hunt. Um, I shot like a 65, 70-inch buck on that hunt, and um, but my passion really didn't start until I moved down to Tucson to go to college, and um did a couple years of some heavy duty school and then uh I actually put in for unit 33 and drew a, a late trophy hunt there in 33 and that's really where it kind of started went out on a couple scouting trips and just was blown away by the the numbers of deer that I could see down there versus hunting mule deer up around St. John's in the the unit 2s and stuff you know we go weeks at a time without even seeing a deer up there so that's kind of when my my i guess i got bit by the coos deer bug was on that for that trophy hunt while i was in college and ever since then that's all i can really think about that's awesome yeah i know once you get bitten by the coos deer bug uh you know it, it, it's something for me that that i find myself you know even in the off season just thinking about 
you know, this buck or that buck or, you know, thinking about a certain area that I want to go into. And, you know, my wife will say, what are you thinking about? And then she just smiles and shakes her head and walks off because she knows I'm dreaming about some big coos buck or thinking about some hunt that I'd been on. And uh, it's it's funny running into different coos deer hunters. It seems like we all have that same passion. And hunters in general, I think, you know, whether it's coos deer, mule deer, elk, whatever, sheep, whatever you're passionate about. Um, tell me a little bit about this 126-inch 3x3 with eye guards that you shot, uh, uh, when it was, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe some of the details of the buck, just a gorgeous buck. Um, I killed that buck in 2012. Um I, I found him this the same year that that I killed him, so I, I don't have a you know a, a ton of history of him. I I found him when he was just starting to grow there and uh, kept tabs on him for a, a couple months. Um, I I did try and shoot him with my bow. I actually missed him twice with my bow. Um, was probably out, out of a tree stand, Devin, or, or spot and no, stalk? spot and stalking him. Um, first shot was a little bit of a long poke, 72 yards, I think. And, you know, he was broadside, didn't know I was there, calm as could be. And he string jumped on me. I missed him by maybe an inch over the top of his back. And uh, second shot was a chip shot, like 38 yards, and I clipped a little branch and I, I don't really know what happened on that one. <laughs> so you actually had a rifle tag that year, but the way Arizona works is we can actually hunt with a bow as long as your rifle hunt hasn't come and you haven't harvested. So you tried to shoot them, obviously, with the velvet on, uh, and, and then you ended up having a rifle tag a couple months later? I did, yeah. And um, tell me about the transition from... Uh, you know, his summer grounds to, to winter grounds, or uh, if, if, you know, if he stayed fairly local, uh, maybe tell me about how you were feeling from the time you missed him and then having to wait until your rifle season was there. Did you go in and penetrate his country or did you leave him alone or give me kind of the background on that? Well, I, I guess it all started when, when I found him. I, um, I actually hung a, a motion camera in a saddle, um, you know, early on in the season. And I only got, I think, two different sets of pictures of him on there, you know, real early when he was just nubbing out. And then uh, another photo when he was developing pretty good. And I knew from the get-go he was going to be uh, one of the biggest bucks I'd ever seen. Um, so I basically just started bisecting or separating out the the chunk of country in there and just you know by process of elimination started checking stuff off where uh where i didn't see him until i eventually found him found him about a mile or so away from where i got those pictures of him on that camera and after i actually laid eyes on him he lived right there within uh i would say 500 yard by 500 yard this one little knob he was on there day night every day all the time never never moved from there ever so so before you go any further 
you you first saw him with the trail camera and they must have been random pictures from him maybe going to water or or just a moving pattern but then you could almost throw a blanket around a 500 yard square from then on once you actually found him what what caused him to be in that saddle to get those photos taken of what what is your speculation of those photos um and then talk to me a little bit about watching him um in, in that small area you know this is this has been a subject of mine that i've really been trying to figure out is is why i originally got those pictures of him down there if you know he while i was watching him over the course of a couple months he never went down there that i know of of course i wasn't watching him every single day but you know he was always on that knob somewhere um I, over the last bit of a while running motion cameras, I find more often than not when, when these bucks are in velvet and, and growing, they tend to go for weird random walks and I can't, I can't figure it out yet. I don't know what it is. I got a, another buck that I was watching the last couple of years. The first time I got a picture of him was two miles from where he ended up you know, kind of where I considered his home range. I got pictures of him two miles away from there and other bucks, you know, I, I don't seem to notice that they go on those walks. It's kind of a, I don't know, in, in my group of my little hunting group of guys, we, we just say they go for walks, random walks when they're in that early velvet stage growing. You know, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that, um, I don't run a lot of trail cameras. Actually, I don't run any trail cameras, but I do have buddies that do. And I have heard them also talk about these walkabouts. And what's interesting is a lot of these walkabouts tend to be some of these bigger bucks. And I remember some other buddies of mine that run quite a bit of cameras, and uh, they talk about bucks that you know are very, very patternable, very, very habitual, and then all of a sudden – uh, they go on a walkabout and they're gone for, you know, a week or so. And then all of a sudden they're right back in there. So, I mean, maybe it's a mystery we'll never find out. Um, so recapping what you said, you first got pictured of this 126 inch buck when he was just nubbing out. What was it about him that you knew he was a giant? I mean, was he wide or what, what, what was it with his characteristic that you just could tell he was going to be a big buck? Just the... Well, a couple factors is his body size. He was a huge bodied buck, one of the biggest bodied bucks I've ever been had my hands on. Just a giant chest. Um, you know, his back hips looked real small, and a big head on him. And you know, just had mass, had some spread going. You know, the points were real heavy coming off, and. Um, you know, it, you could just tell that he was going to be something special even early, early on, as, as early as that was. Were you able to, after you shot him, were you able to age him at all or, or guess his age? Or, and do you think he was an old, old buck, or do you think he was just had super genetics and was just the, 
you know, Shaquille O'Neal of Coos Deer and, and just had everything going on in the right spot. My my father actually sent one of his teeth away and, and we got him aged, came back that he was five years old. So, I mean, not an old buck no. um, by any means. So obviously super, super genetics and just, uh, you know, the, the, the anomaly of Coos Deer. Mm-hmm. Devin, in your experience, how much do you think, you know, do you think that there's some bucks that will never be a hundred inches and then all of a sudden you'll just have one that just everything lines up and, you know, by the time he's a three-year-old, he's a, you know, 105 inch deer. How much of that do you think uh, plays in there? Um, I mean, I, I do. There's, you know, there's the, the superior genetic deer and there's deer that are, you know, always going to be a 70 inch two point. It just, uh, yeah. you know, I've I've got multiple deer that we've watched year in and year out, and we see them over and over and over and over again. And, you know, I've had deer that, that had the makings that I thought, you know, they got good eye guards, good G2s, good main beam, good G3s. And you look at them, you go, man, I can't, can't wait to see what that deer looks like next year. And then they, they get to a certain point and they just stop. Um, meaning that, you know, say they turn, you know, they're into a hundred inch and you're thinking, well, if I just let him go, what will he be next year? You'll think he'll be 107. And then you let him go and you think, oh, he's going to blow up 114, 115, but he just stays that, you know, 105, 106 inch. He never goes ahead and blows up. You see that quite a bit. I I do. Yep. Multiple instances of, of that happening where, you know, you got a hundred, 105, it, it looks good. He's got good points, and you think, man, next year, what is that thing going to be? And go back and look at him, and he's almost identical. And then for you know two or three years, he kind of stays stays that same size. So yeah. there, there's definitely bucks that are, you know, stuck in a in a mold, and that's what they're going to be. And there's other bucks that, you know, could put on five, ten, thirty inches. You you just never know. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you've missed him a couple times in the velvet archery. Now you're keeping an eye on the buck. He's staying in a small, tight area. He's on the same knob. How many times did you have visual of the buck between, say, the end of the archery season and, and before you shot him? How how many like times did you actually see him? Ooh, I, I don't even know. I can't. I, I didn't ever keep track. Um, like 10, 20, 30 times? Well, August, September, you know, the end of August, beginning of, beginning of September was when I missed him with my bow. And uh, I actually had to go take, I had booked a moose hunt for my wife, so we had to leave with a week left of the archery season. And uh, came back and went in there and found him. So two months of looking you know, two or three times a week, I was up there looking for him and I saw him just about every time. So quite, quite a bit of time I spent watching him. And then the, the, the tag that you had drawn, uh, which season did you draw Devin? I had the early October hunt. Talk to me a little bit about the, the different seasons and you, I'm betting that you're probably a proponent of those early seasons for a guy like you that has a bunch of time to scout. Um, talk to me about the benefits of that hunt 
um, as you see it? Uh, I mean, exactly what you said. You know, finding finding these big deer, it takes a lot of work. And with as many tags as there are issued in our state, my feeling is when I find a deer that I am interested in harvesting, I really want to have the, the earliest crack at, at getting to that deer. Um, and the October hunt really lends itself to that because the deer are still grouped up with other bucks. If, if they have deer that they hang out with, they're in a pretty stable pattern doing the same thing day in and day out. You know, they might have multiple bedding areas or places that they go that's kind of random, but the general theme behind their habits stays the same that type of year. So for me, really, it's it's a key time to be able to locate, pattern, relocate, and and be sitting there on that first hunt in position to be able to take that deer if, if that's what you want to do. Um, wouldn't you agree that a lot of people that don't have the time to scout like maybe you and I do, wouldn't you think that, you know, sometimes those late November or, or now they're kind of the first part of December, they have a big general hunt. And then even like the December, what they call the premium tags that, you know, are pre-rut, you know, uh, say the 15th through the end of the month of December, those are great hunts for guys that don't have time to scout because typically the weather's cooler and they get a little bit more deer activity. Um, would you agree with that? I, I do, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, you talked about the weather. I mean, our these these deer, you know, you can find them from 8,000 feet down to the desert floor. Um, majority of our tags, I would say, are in the desert. So your conditions depending on where you fall in the year, definitely dictate the amount of deer movement you're going to see. Those early October hunts, you know, sometimes you're limited to 30 minutes in the morning and evening of, of good deer movement. Um, the later you go, obviously, we start getting into December, you know, late November, early December. You might pick up on a, on a little bit of pre-rut activity there. Um, you know, the last couple years, I've really seemed to notice that the rut with these little whitetail is, seems to get later and later and later. That, that trophy December tag that I had in, in college, my first tag down in the desert there by Tucson, um, you know, I remember going out on the 15th and, and seeing three or four bucks that were pretty heavy in with the does on the 15th of December. And as the years have gone by, it seems to me that that is really tapered off. Um, now I don't seem to notice that much activity until you start getting into January, you know, on, on these Southern units around Tucson. But, um, what if you had to guess why why is that do you think it's pressure or do you think it's drought what what do you think the single most important factor for seeing later rutting activity is i don't really know i haven't been able to put my my finger on on that um, yeah i it it's one of those things like 
what we were talking about before. It's one of those mysteries. I, I, I kind of know exactly what you're talking about and talking to a lot of old timer coos deer hunters, you know, they would talk about, you know, those December hunts, you know, seeing lots of rutting activity at the beginning of the hunt all the way through. And, and, you know, I wonder if it's drought and then, the, you know, I, I wonder how much of it is pressure and they just, you know, have gotten chased around so much that maybe once the seasons die down, they actually have a little bit of time to not be looking over their shoulder as much, you know, for hunters and maybe have a little bit more time to just get after the does and, and get the rut going. Um, it's It's hard to say. Going back to what you were saying on the October and when you would go out and, and, you know, September, early October, when you were scouting for this buck, um, was he, was the buck more vulnerable to your eye in the morning or more vulnerable in the evening? Or were they, would you say 50, 50 on the sightings? Well, once I figured out where he was and what he was doing, I mean, I could almost guarantee that, that I could go in there and, and see him. Um, the the mornings were were probably better better odds there was a couple evenings when i sat there and and you know he didn't come out where i could see him in time before it got dark so so probably the mornings were best and you know he'd mill around feeding a little bit before he went in for the the rest of the day so so better odds were in the morning um he lived on on this little knob that he lived on had a awesome north facing slope and then really open south facing slope and occasionally he would come out on the south facing slope and and be in the sun for a little while in the mornings but majority of the time he's you know he probably spent 98% of his time on on the north side of that little knob there i was going to ask you about that as far as in the amount of times that you saw him, for people that are, you know, listening that are trying to learn coos deer behavior and whatnot, um, you know, during the summer and in, in those months, you know, September, October, and even into November when it's still very warm, how, how what percentage of that buck's life would you bet that he spent in the shady areas and what percentage kind of in the open in the, in the sunny areas? On this particular deer, yes, I would say in in like a two week span, I would see him on the on that south facing slope one time out of those out of fourteen days. So okay, so so you could possibly deduct that either a a five year old deer or b a big deer or maybe even just coos deer in general are going to spend time on those north facing shady slopes as opposed to looking for them out in the wide open. While you might see one in the wide open, you might be better off glassing into the dense cover and finding those bucks. Would that be safe to say? I I would say on the majority, yes. Um, I mean, there are instances where I found deer that live on south facing slopes that that stay there all the time it it uh really boggles my mind sometimes where i do, do actually find some deer but if you know if you're looking for the the big caliber older age class bucks i mean they are 
they are sneaky little boogers and you uh you need to look into the deep nasty holes and the the hidey places and thick slopes and you know if you you they they definitely hide <laughs> yeah leave it at that yeah absolutely they have an unbelievable ability to be laying right there and they're there the whole time and it's they can be very difficult to see if 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 during that in that early season and let's say you watch the buck from sun up to sundown in your opinion from what you've observed how many times would that buck be up and then down either ch- changing positions for shade or getting up to feed uh, or or let's actually just start with once they've bedded down okay mm-hmm. so they've they've done their little 30 minute feed in the morning and i know moon cycle i know there's a lot of factors but just in general how long would that buck pretty much be down all day Whew. For for me, that's kind of a, a loaded question, because I I have found over the last couple, I mean, just in general, watching whitetail bucks and and keeping tabs on them, every single one is really different. Um, you know, this the the big deer that I killed that we're talking about, you know, he would kind of be up and down. A, a lot of the times in the day um but i you know where i found him was very very low hunting pressure it was way way back in like like three miles back into where i actually found him um the the buck i killed this last year in 2014 he on the october hunt would not be up in the morning at all um, you would go glass for an hour or so at, at first light and, and we could never find him. Um, and then he would get up about nine thirty or 10 o'clock and mill around for 10 minutes and then lay back down and be laid down the whole rest of the day. So, and, and maybe not even get up, uh, 30 minutes left of light. He'd, he'd be bedded pretty much the whole time. Yeah. So he, he, I assume, uh, was probably pretty nocturnal Mm -hmm. and so what i hear you saying is all these deer are different um but i also hear you saying that uh they do get up and down during the day but they don't actually move a big distance they may get up feed for two three minutes and then back down stretch their legs and then back down is that correct yeah and you know if i i guess maybe we should change this over a little bit to more you know techniques and and what it takes to actually find them find them because i mean your your number one tool for finding these deer obviously is having some optics and and staying behind them all day if you can i mean there's in my opinion not a bad time to be glassing you know if if you're trying to find a new deer or you're looking for one that you know about i mean the more time you're spending on the glass and the i guess the odds you know you got to be looking if if they bedded down already and and they're pretty much set for the day you got to be looking right where they're at in that couple you know two to 15 minute window of when they're going to stand up and 
maybe turn around, lay back down, or move positions a little bit. Absolutely. Devin, um, it's a great point you bring up. Um, let me ask you about the optics you do use. What what do you prefer to use for these deer? Tell me about the lineup of optics that you that you prefer. Well, right now I have two 65 millimeter Swarovski HD spotting scopes mounted together. And okay. um, I'm using the 25 to 50 variable wide angle eyepieces on them. Um, I would say 90% of the time I'm glassing with them on, on the 25 power. Um, I, I had a couple different sets of doctors before I, I got this Swarovski set up. Um, so, you know, the, basically the, the best amount of binocular you can, you can have. Um, I hunted a long time with, with a pair of just 15s. Um, you know, those are in, I mean, they got so many new optics out now. They have the 12 power Swarovskis, 10s, 15s, big eyes but the the more high quality better glass you can get the better off you're going to be in my opinion and and i agree with you completely on that i want to go back a little bit to these twin spotting scopes tell me about what what actual benefit from a from a sitting and glassing with those twin spotting scopes how does that give you a benefit over a 15 power say swarovski uh a binocular the the major difference in the power on those things is for me being able to see through vegetation um and and when you say that are you looking for ear flicking are you looking for black noses are you looking for tips of antler yeah so all of the above anything and everything so definition from from an ability to not just look at a hill, you want to be looking into the hill and and be able to literally pick up anything that's there that's a deer coos deer characteristic. For sure. So you know if if you're sitting on a hill and and looking across the canyon with a pair of ten or twelve power binoculars, I mean you can see all the open spaces on that hillside. Uh, you know, I mean you got it pretty well covered, but back to how sneaky these big giant deer can be they they might not be out walking around when when you're looking so you got to be able to look in the dark shady holes and under trees through trees behind bushes i mean the the whole kit and caboodle so those those big eyes have really allowed me to just dig and tear stuff apart and and find deer that I probably wouldn't have found if I didn't have those. And and while we're on that subject, Devin, um, walk me through. Let's say this is you're glassing off a point. This is not a place where you've seen a big deer, but you're prospecting for deer, looking for a big deer. That you know you you don't know a deer's there, but you are looking for a big deer. And you're starting out in its first light. At first light. Would you describe your glassing as very slow and meticulous, or are you very quick and 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 really covering the country in the first fifteen minutes of light? Uh, for me, when I first sit down somewhere, I I generally look at it with 
my bare eyes and and I'll pick out you know three or five different places that that look real deary to me you know if if I broke it up I'd say well that bench over there that little bowl over there um you know the I I kind of break it down and look at it and go if if I was a deer where would I be and I I tend to pan through those areas relatively quickly um you know just looking for the obvious type deer and then after I kind of go through the spots that look good to me I will generally I try and break it up a little bit um but you know I'll I'll quick glance everything that I can see just looking for the obvious stuff um you know not not crazy wild fast but but try and catch deer that are in the open and obvious right off the bat. And, you know, I'll probably do that for about an hour or so. And then I, uh, because, you know, by the time you look in the spots that I think look good to me and you kind of glance over it all good, you know, you got it pretty covered. And and then I will just sit there and start from the right edge and down and up and down and up and down and up all the way across everything you can see. Okay, so once you slow, so what you're saying is you glass in the obvious spots that your eye tells you that look like a deer's there, but then once the the morning progresses, you're going to slow way down and you're going to start gritting and and really trying to pick apart the the whole base base of the hill and the whole coverage, everything you can see, and you typically start and go from right to left, or were you just saying that as an example that from right to left, or do you always go right to left? Just as an example. Okay, and then you also said something about up, down, up, down. When you're gritting, I go side to side, side to side, side to side, and then, you know, down, side to side. You, I, do I hear you correct that you are gritting up and down on your sweep when you're sweeping through there? I do. I, I, I tend to go up and down. So I'll go okay. up, move to the left or right, and go down, move to the left or right, go up. And And – you know, we're getting detail here, but this is kind of stuff that I think people can learn from. It, are you are you taking, say, a whole north-facing slope and, and, and gritting all the way to the bottom, all the way to the top, or do you sometimes break it down in, into areas? Uh, kind of just what you feel for the day, you know, um, but you got to look at the whole hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, some of these country you're going up on these high knobs and you've got a ton of country to cover if, if you get too methodical you may not even cover the whole country in a day yeah that, you know that's a big factor with using those big binoculars that i got is i mean you can see so much country with those that there's there's days and places where i go and you know i might only glass one ridge line in that country that day um because there's so much to look at you can't cover it all so you know some places it might take five plus trips in there to actually glass it all one time um yeah absolutely um it just depends on the country you're looking at mm -hmm. um let's shift gears a little bit to um, you've been watching this deer walk me in to say, you know, a couple days before into the hunt and tell me a little bit about how the hunt went down, uh, for this 126 inch deer. Well, my, 
my goal and my thought when when we find a deer that that we like is you know i i want to be set up first light on opening day to be basically pulling the trigger on the on that animal um you know the the majority of the hunt for me is actually not when i have a tag um when you have the tag in your pocket for me that's five percent of well i don't know if you could say it's five percent but that's a small portion of the actual hunt for me finding the deer figuring them out where they live and and to be set up right there to kill them the first chance you have is is my kind of goal with these little deer so to the actual hunt with with my tag on, on that october rifle hunt i actually because the deer was so far in i packed in there on monday and um i set up a a little one-man tent across the canyon from where i saw the deer 98 percent of the time and um you know i i hid my tent and i could crawl out of my tent and in five steps be to my tripod and and looking at that hill where that deer was at and i watched him all day monday tuesday wednesday and thursday before the hunt even opened on thursday i actually had him bed down 250 yards across the canyon from me all day there on thursday so it was uh for me it was a pretty sure thing that come friday morning he was in trouble and um friday morning why i didn't really sleep thursday night i basically laid there (laughs) laid there awake all night and i don't know what time i ended up crawling out of my tent but it was probably an hour or so before you know even first light where you could see anything and i sat there for a long long time just trying to actually calm myself down um because I was on cloud nine just waiting for, for things to go down. And it finally got light enough to glass. And I glassed the the couple spots. He, he kind of had, you know, even on that one hillside, he had three general spots on there where, where he hung out the most. So I looked in those spots and he wasn't there. And I kind of glassed the hillside real quick and couldn't find him. And I kind of started freaking out thinking maybe I had camped too close or you know what happened but I I I knew he had to be there because I had been there for four days already and uh, so I just had to calm myself down and I started on the upper right corner and I started gridding the hillside apart and I got about halfway through the hillside and ended up glassing one of the little bucks that that he hung out with all the time and was looking at that deer and and this big deer's head popped out of the bushes they were just in some pretty deep brush and um Jevin how far was the buck I assume the night before on Thursday night you bedded the buck how far had he moved from the night uh from the last time you saw him till where you picked up the little buck and where he ended up popping out they they were they were just straight up from where they had been the evening before. So Thursday evening, they were 250 yards straight across from me. And that morning when I found him there, they were 500 yards away. 
Um, but they were, you know, just straight up from where they were the night before, but at, clear at the top of that little knob that they were on. So. But definitely a good lesson for coos deer hunters in that if you're not seeing the buck and and there's not people pressure and you just need to keep looking because more than likely they're right there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. And even if there is some people pressure, I've seen bucks run out of a canyon and, you know, the next day you glass back and he's right back in his home spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think that's a good lesson for people to learn and, and to listen to. And I, I've seen it hunting with Dar so much, you know, and especially big bucks. It just seems like they're so, you know, if you believe in the pattern and believe in your scouting, you can really... Um, hone in on these bucks Mm -hmm. so you found the buck and moved over did you have to move at all or did you were you able to shoot them from your position well i I had my gun all benched up already the the day before you know expecting to find them at at first light and shoot them right across the canyon there a little chip shot now he was you know 500 yards away and at the top of the hill so i had to adjust my setup with my rifle a little bit and i I actually had buck fever so bad that uh, I can imagine he, uh, you know, the top of the hill was was pretty brushy and some big trees up there, and so I got on him with my gun and and was watching him and he went behind some trees and came out and just kind of walked across. There were there was three openings on the top of that hill and he walked across the first one and and didn't stop so I didn't shoot and then he came out in the second one and and you know it was almost like he knew I was there because he would walk and then stop behind the trees and then he walked across the second opening and stopped behind the trees and then he he started feeding again and you know his head came out and his neck came out and I was getting ready to shoot and just waiting for him to take that one more step and when you know it he lifted up his head and just walked across that third opening <laughs> and uh so i i didn't i didn't shoot at him and then i got a little bit worried because the whole rest of that knob i, I couldn't see but i knew that they were going to be hanging out there from all the time bow hunting him and watching him you know so i i ended up grabbing my rifle and and i ran across that canyon um there was a a little saddle between my hill and and the hill that he was on and i ran down through that saddle and and up the other side and kind of around the the corner without getting into details but i i popped out and and looked up the hill where i thought they were going to be and and he was standing there at i don't know it was 125 or 130 yards or so and i knelt down behind my tripod and the rest is history that's awesome. Was he aware that you were there? Was he on to you or no? No, they, he didn't have a clue. Yeah, that's awesome. And so he ended up being 126 and in change gross as a three by three with eye guards. Yeah, just a beautiful typical buck. Um, did he have any extra points at all? Or was just perfect clean typical. No, he's a, a perfect clean typical. That's about as big of three point. Three by three buck, you could possibly shoot. Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to top top him with with that. You know, no yeah. cheaters, yeah. no nothing, and 
what were his twos? Was he like nine and seven or nine and eight? What were his what were his G twos and G threes? Uh, I think they're all a little over nine inches. Oh wow, the twos and th- the threes are over nine as well. Uh-huh. That's beautiful. And so he was probably what about fourteen inches wide? Uh, fifteen and an eighth, I think, on the inside. Beautiful. With, That's just with nine. I remember nineteen and six on the main beams. I think. Uh, um, crazy mass you know he's real heavy and just uh i mean he he took the first place in the uh 2012 boone and crockett awards period for the typical category that's um, awesome so i am i am tickled to death with it that's awesome and and that's your biggest personal deer that is my biggest personal buck yes and uh you know, what are some of the other bucks, just general class? I mean, have you shot a handful of bucks over 100 inches, or what? 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 what's some of the other bucks you have shot? I have this big one we've been talking about. I have two other bucks that, that make the all-time Boone and Crockett book. Um, both of them are around 118 gross inches. Uh, one nets 111, the other one 113. Um, I have another... Four by four with eye guards that missed the all-time book by a quarter inch. Um, you know, and a, a handful of, of really nice 107 to 113 gross type deer that um, you know are are big, big giant bucks. Uh, my wife's got a velvet buck that she shot with her bow that on the day she killed it was around 119 gross um she's got a handful of other big bucks and then this this one she killed just this last year with her muzzleloader is a you know a total gross inches on him is 128 and and three eighths i think if you just add it up like sci would and goodness what what's his main frame is he a typical or a a, a nasty non-typical he is a four by four with eye guards and then he has matching forks in both of his g3s oh man and and so you've been around a lot of big bucks um out of all those bucks you just mentioned how many of those bucks are bucks that you've seen prior to the season i don't need an exact number but on a, on a, you know, give me a percentage. Are most all of those bucks scouted out bucks that you knew were there and that you have a plan and you efficiently go after those bucks? Total out of all of them that we killed. I mean, when I first, when I first started hunting, you know, we would. Well, I'm talking about, you know, some of the better bucks are most all of the better bucks, you know, say 105 or better are most all of those bucks that you have really, scouted and and had a game plan and and worked on killing that specific buck the the ones that i have killed i would say yeah um the ones that my wife have killed she always gives me a hard time about you know well getting out and scouting for you you but by the time my tag comes you you know you killed most of the ones you knew about with yourself or, (laughs) or somebody else and and i get you know the the end of the the straw there with her but um it i don't know she's got some fantastic luck and we tend to tend to pull them out of the woodwork when when she's hunting her 
her that big buck that she just killed we did not know about that deer until the day i found him um, and and did you find him during the season then we did it was the the wow. third day of her hunt and um we uh well we i i had a big buck picked out for her but a guy ended up killing it on the on the october hunt um so we were we were going after a, a different buck we had spent a couple of days looking for him and had some bad weather and stuff just kind of mess us up and there was a a chunk of country that I had always wanted to go look in and I just hadn't had the time to do it and that morning I I told her I had had enough of looking for the buck that that we were after and ended up going in this new chunk of country and the the third draw that we ended up looking in that buck was was standing there and you know it was nine o'clock in the morning and he was up I don't know what he was doing but uh we came around this little corner and I just looked up the draw with my bare eyes and, and saw him. And, um, so as much as I'd like to say, we, we had him patterned and, and knew about him. We didn't, but you know, it, it goes, goes to find, finding these big deer. I mean, obviously you got to have them a lot of time to put into it. Um, you know, you got to, kind of think outside of the box and, and look in places that are, you know, maybe getting overlooked or don't have a lot of hunting pressure for a couple years. Um, you know, one of the major factors in my opinion is just having a knack for where to look. Um, my two closest hunting buddies, they, they always tell me all the time, well, you know, why did you go look in there or you know what in the heck were you ever doing over there and my answer is i don't know it just looked good to me and i went in there and looked so definitely you know the more time you can look the more places you can look and you know being i mean the number one thing is being persistent just because you went and glassed somewhere once doesn't mean there's not a big giant buck in there you might have to go there. For instance, my 2014 buck, um, I saw him in very early on when he was still in velvet. I just got about a 30 second look at him before he topped over a ridge. And I, I think we went in there 10 or 12 times before we saw him again and saw him hard horned. He had rubbed his velvet. And then we went in there another three or four times again looking for him and, and couldn't find him. The next time, so I saw him in velvet. We saw him hard-horned right after the velvet stage. The next time I think we saw him was the the day before the hunt started, Thursday before the hunt, and uh, ended up shooting him on, on Friday, got got lucky. And, and that buck was was one that wasn't like anything else. You know, I, I mentioned to you before, he, uh, at first light, was always bedded down, um, never moved during prime time in the morning. About 9.30 or 10 o'clock, he would get up and, and maybe move beds. And if, if you didn't know or you weren't looking right where he was at, you you dang sure wouldn't see him. Um, so just a, a sneaky, sneaky, dirty old buck. <laughs> Exactly. Sounds like a great buck. And, and, um, 
If you had to pick a time other than, say, the first hour and last hour of light, if you had to pick a specific one-hour time, and I know you and I and the guys that are really into Kuzo, they glass, we glass all day, but if you had to say, I'm going to glass first hour, last hour, and one other hour, when would that be? For me, it would probably be a even toss-up between, like, 10, 11, or, you know... One or two or two to three o'clock, somewhere in there. You know, it's funny um, you say that because I'm the same way. That 10 to 11, I don't know what it is, but, you know, it just seems like those bucks always get up around 10 o'clock, 1030, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. No matter what the moon's doing, no matter what time of year it is, it seems like 10 o'clock, it just seems just those deer get up then. Um, so it's very interesting that you say that. You know, we've just scratched the surface here today talking about coos deer, and I, I look forward to having you on again because um, there's just so much to talk about with these deer, and, and um, you know, we've already learned a lot about um, how you do things and um, how methodical you are, and, and you can hear the passion that you have for these deer. Mm -hmm. um, so I applaud you for that, and I look forward to having you on again to talk about other things because, I mean, we've got moon cycles we've got you know temperature we've got you know rutting we've got all sorts of stuff to talk about um before we close here tell me a little bit about your taxidermy the arizona wildlife designs um uh tell me a little bit about your operation and how people can contact you either through facebook or through your uh website or, or what have you yeah. email or whatever you want we're a we're a pretty pretty small studio um, used to be Harlow's taxidermy. Chris Harlow um, ran it for for a long time, and I took over from him about probably four four years ago now. And um, we have a website. It's ArizonaWildlifeDesigns.com. Um, we have a Facebook page, Arizona Wildlife Designs, um, and. You know, we're we're relatively small. It's myself and Chris still works for me, and I have one other full-time employee in there. And um, we're really into just putting our heads down and, and getting work done. We run a six-month turnaround time at my shop, which, um, as far as I can tell, in Arizona is, is one of the quickest shops that there is. And, you know, we we do the best we can on, on every mount that we, we mount. We... We're not very boastful. We don't claim to be the best, but um, based on our feedback from customers and everything, everyone's way beyond happy with their quality of, of mounts that they're getting out of my shop. So, um, you know, if you had something you wanted to, to get mounted, definitely give us a call and we'd be more than happy to chit chat with you. So Sounds good. And Devin, how can people find you? On Facebook is probably the easiest way um on your personal name or arizona wildlife designs Air, arizona wildlife designs or my personal personal page that's not a problem okay um, so devin devin beck or arizona wildlife designs mm -hmm. and you can you know contact us through our our website there's a little link on there to send us an email or uh, us a call whatever you guys want to do sounds good and i'll make sure to link out your stuff uh on this podcast uh and i really appreciate you spending time with us uh congratulations on 
the success you've had and uh, look forward to seeing how you do uh, this coming year. And uh, I actually haven't met you uh, in person. Look forward to that uh, one day and uh, just uh, wish you the best of success and want to thank you for uh, spending time with us here today. Well, sure. That goes goes both ways, Jay. So uh, hopefully we'll get to hook up here sooner than later one of these times. That sounds good. And I just got one last thing for you. Okay. Go Devils. <laughs> you know what ASU graduates call U of A graduates, right? Let's hear it. Boss. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic, buddy. That's great. I'm sure my buddy Brian Rimza and, and Ryan Eustace and my cousin Jimmy that all went to the U of A, they're going to love to hear that yeah, one. Yeah, probably. So. I, I know Brian pretty well, so uh, tell him I said hello next time you talk to him. That sounds great, Devin. Thanks for being with us. Yep, yep. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Wow, what an op- awesome episode that was with Devin Beck and getting to hear about a couple of the giant bucks that he was able to watch and harvest. And my hat's off to him for being patient. And um, all the good coos deer hunters that I know are just uh, patient guys that are really, really into it and love to glass and love everything about the sport. So I want to say uh, kudos to Devin Beck and I want to thank him for coming on we had a great episode I want to thank you my listeners for all your loyal support I want to thank you for all your questions and comments Uh, I want to thank you for going on iTunes and giving five-star ratings and leaving good positive comments that helps our placement with iTunes Uh, for those of you that tune in through Podbean uh, I want to thank you for tuning in and uh, just uh, really appreciate all of the the great feedback from you guys. Uh, if you need to get a hold of me to leave comments, questions, uh, please email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can keep to following along with us uh, on our Instagram at jscottoutdoors and my associate Dar Colburn. Uh, on our Facebook page at J. Scott Outdoors and on our YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors YouTube channel, uh, on the website, jscottoutdoors.com, as well as our Colburn and Scott Outfitters.com. I just want to thank you guys for all of your support. Uh, It's been an awesome spring. I just got back from Gould's Turkey Hunting in Mexico. Had an awesome spring uh, turkey season, I believe uh, 19 turkeys uh, I got to watch get killed this year. Had some awesome gobbling and strutting and uh, it's just been a a great season. I'm looking forward to the summer and all the fishing that that I'm going to be doing and I'm sure you guys are excited too. Things are starting to warm up. Uh, We've had some incredibly timed um, storms uh, looking like antler growth for deer and elk. Both are going to be great, and um, this fall season should be a great one. So just exciting times here. I want to thank you guys again for your support, and uh, until next time, guys, God bless. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast, brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.